Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Banter, a podcast brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. Today is an extremely notable episode, arguably an extremely sad episode. All three of your banter hosts are taking the next steps out of AEI. We're moving on to new things. We're very sadly the Institute. We've had terrific experiences here. I've absolutely loved it. That being said, we've all been here for over a couple of years now. And AI, as they always say, great place to come to and a better place to leave um, because of the opportunities that arise from being at the Institute. So it's been a pleasure hosting banter for the last year and a half. And we hope that you enjoy our final episode here. Max, anything else to add? Well, I want to thank all of our listeners, everybody who's tuned in and sent us your reviews, sent us your feedback. We know many of you. It's been incredible to see the audience grow during our tenure as, as hosts. Uh, it's been incredible. And on the outro today, each of us is going to rank our five favorite banter episodes. And there have been so many good ones to choose from. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, I, don't, I honestly don't know what they think. I know that Matt probably won't pick Jeb Bush because he went after his Patriots fanhood. I'm a Buccaneers fan now for the rest. Oh, you're a Buccaneers fan now, of course. So maybe he will like you better now. And then I don't know if Frost is going to go with the Mooch who took a personal shot at him. But there's a lot of intrigue, and we have our top five ready to go in the outro. So stay tuned, and we'll also talk more about what we're doing next. But first, we have an interview today. And to reiterate what they've said, it's only a slight exaggeration to say hosting this podcast has been an opportunity of the lifetime. Um, we've all really enjoyed it. I'm really going to miss it. And we hope you all stay tuned and keep listening as the show moves forward. In the meantime, though, we were joined this week by Mark Thiessen. Mark is best known as the former chief speechwriter for the George W. Bush administration. He's also a Fox News contributor, a fellow at AEI, and the host of the great podcast also brought to you by AEI, What the Hell is Going On? Mark joined us today to talk about his recent interview with President Trump, who we interviewed for over an hour in the Oval Office recently. And we talked about that, we talked about the upcoming election, the ongoing domestic unrest in America, the coronavirus crisis, the onset of cancel culture, pretty much everything under the sun you could think of. And we really enjoyed the interview. We hope you will too. And without further ado, here is Mark Thiessen. Governor Haley, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mr. George Will, welcome. Glad to be with you. Arthur Brooks, welcome back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Ambassador Wolfowitz, pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Ms. Peggy Noonan, thank you for coming. Guys, thank you very much for having me. Mr. Bolton, it's an honor for you to be with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. J.D. Vance, welcome. Thank you for having me. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure to be with you. So you recently held a pretty long interview with President Trump. Uh, you wrote two columns about it in the Washington Post, which we'll link to in the show notes. What was your main takeaway from that experience? So it was interesting. I, I, I spent about an hour with the president in the Oval Office. Uh, I walked in um, and he was actually going over polls when I walked in. Jared Kushner was in there, uh, Steve Miller, uh, a bunch of other staff members. They were going over some polls. Um, and uh, he was showing me a bunch of polls that showed that he's not losing. He's, uh, he seems to believe uh, that there's a lot of people out there who are not telling pollsters that they're Trump voters uh, and that the polls were all wrong in 2016 and that they're, uh, they're wrong today. Uh, so he's pretty confident, uh, you know, and he says, he said to me, I haven't even started campaigning yet. Uh, so uh, this, he, he seems to think he's going to be able to turn it around. But I mean, the truth, the reality is he is behind. 
um, and uh, he's been hurt by uh, some of his uh, more strident rhetoric, uh, and, uh, and which is, I think, turning away a lot of suburban swing voters. So Trump won the suburbs in 2016 by six points, um, and he won in particular, he won um, in the suburban voters gave him the margin in several key swing states. Uh, those voters switched to the Democrats in 2018 and gave them the control of the House of Representatives. Um, uh, but they were polls were showing before the pandemic that they were coming home. Uh, they, major, the vast majority of them planned to vote Trump in, the, in 2020. Uh, and then this pandemic hit, uh, the economic crisis hit, the race riots hit. I mean, if you think about what we've had in the last six months, we've had the worst pandemic since, uh, since 1918, worst economic crisis since 1930, worst social unrest since the 1960s, all in a matter of about four or five months. You know, so the, and the president's rhetoric more so than I think his actions uh, have uh, have uh, really driven a lot of those swing voters uh, away. It's not it's not too late to turn it around, but uh, he's got to change his tone. Mark, Mark, there's a statistic that keeps showing that says, you know, a majority of Americans say the country's headed in the wrong direction, or an overwhelming majority say, th or things are out of control. They keep saying things are out of control. Yeah. Do you think things being out of control, that perception, helps the president or hurts him? Well, so it's interesting because, first of all, if, if I don't know who the people who are saying things are not out of control or that they're happy with the direction of the country because, as I said, worst pandemic since 1918, worst economic crisis since the 1930s, worst race, uh, racial unrest since the 1960s. If anyone thinks the cut things are going in the right direction, uh, they're crazy. Uh, so, you know, that the, I'm not surprised at that number. And that's why I don't think that metric is necessarily the same metric it would normally be in normal times for a presidential election, because even Trump supporters are going to tell you, yeah, the country's headed in the wrong direction uh, because we've got we're dealing with all these, you know, overlapping crises happening at the same time. I think that, you know, if you if you four months ago. Everybody, almost every Democrat I spoke to was was convinced the president was heading to cruising to re-election, re re and now most people are convinced the opposite. There's four months to go. You know, we had uh, the best job. The last two months, we've had the best job numbers in the history of the country. Uh, we had, uh, I think, 2.7 million jobs created in May. Four point, uh, I think, eight million jobs created in June. Uh, I had Michael Strain on our podcast. What the hell's going on? Uh, and he said he expects to have 20 to 30 percent economic growth in the summer, probably 10 or 15 percent economic growth uh, in the fall. You know, so already we've probably recovered, you know, between 30 and 40 percent of the jobs that were lost during the lockdown. If that growth continues, uh, then the economy is good. You know, we're going to have probably 60, 70 percent of the jobs restored, maybe more by Election Day. Uh, we'll have a head of steam economically going. Um, and so. What that means is that there are a lot of people out there who will, and then the president's going to say to voters, do you want to keep this going or do you want to risk it all on Joe Biden and the Democrats? And here's why they're going to be a disaster economically. So it'll be, especially with those swing voters, Trump's base is raring to go. It's the, it's the most loyal, fired up base any president has ever had, but he needs to get some swing voters to go with him uh, to decide the election. And so he's going to say to those swing voters, you know, it's, it's in your, basically it's in their economic self-interest to vote re-elect Donald Trump, even if they don't like him. But he has to give them permission to cast that vote in their own economic self-interest by saying the kinds of things that people expect a president to say, like, we support racial justice. He said it, but he doesn't say it every time he talks about these issues. Like saying, I stand with people in favor of peaceful protesters before he says, but we're for law and order and we're going to not allow rioting. His, his failure to take those simple steps to create, provide comfort 
for those swing voters is, is driving them away and could cost them the election. You talk about how much has happened in the last four months, and it's been so volatile, so extreme, that it would have seemed unrealistic in even a TV screenwriting room. I mean, if you were to yeah. draft up a West Wing narrative, this would have seemed yeah. ridiculous by those standards. There's so much can happen in the next four months. And as the polls look bad, although less bad when you actually look at the important states, I mean, sure, it's the gaps wider than ever in urban areas, but in the, you know, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, North Carolina, it's close. How much are the debates going to play into this? And is the Trump camp kind of relying on those as a way to expose Joe Biden? What's the thinking there? So it's interesting. The, the debates are going to be very important, um, and particularly because Joe Biden is winning right now by hiding in his basement, right? Uh, you know, the less he talks, the better he does, uh, because anytime he opens his mouth, you know, some, you know, squirt salad appears. Uh, so, you know, he's, his campaigning is not his friend, right? The less people see of him, uh, the more they like him. So the debates are going to be pivotal. The president did an interview with Chris Wallace on Sunday where he just, and I wrote, I've got a column that I just submitted to the Post today on this, uh, that he just, you know, basically said, you know, if, he, if, Chris Wall, if Joe Biden was doing this uh, hour-long interview with you, Chris, he'd be on the floor yelling, mommy, mommy, have, come get me. You know, he's basically saying he's not, you know, yeah, Chris Wallace asked him, are you, is he senile? And he says, I don't want to say that, but he should take a senility test, you know? And it's just, that's, that is, that's a problem because, he's lowering expectations for the debates, right? So if Joe Biden shows up at debates, if they keep talking about how Joe Biden is senile, and then Joe Biden shows up at debates and strings together a few coherent sentences, all of a sudden, hey, he's not senile, he can be president, you know, he wins, right? Um, and then the other group that Trump is struggling with now that he won in 2016 are seniors, right? So he won the senior vote so anywhere between seven and 9%, depending on which exit surveys you look at, right? He's trailing in swing states by about six points with seniors. So not, not disastrously, but, they're, but they're, some of them are defecting from him. Why is that? Um, because his push for the economy, to open the economy quickly, is really important to his reelection, really important to the country and the people who've lost their jobs and lost their businesses. But it spooks seniors because one, they're the most vulnerable to the pandemic, right, if there's a resurgence of the pandemic. And two, they're the least concerned about jobs because they're retired. Right. So they, they don't see the benefit and they see the president pushing, pushing, pushing. And then on top of that, they see him making fun of an old guy who has dementia or may have dementia. And they don't like that. It's kind of offensive because they're all struggling with memory problems, too. Or they have, you know, a, a, a husband or wife who are struggling with memory problems. They don't want to hear the president making fun of a, a guy for senility. So it's a problem that the president is doing this. I, I think he ought to leave it to his surrogates to make that point. Uh, let the first let Joe Biden make the point to the people by saying what he said. I mean, literally, you can just count from the every time he emerges from his position, there's there's a couple of times where literally he said nothing, just mumbled a string of words that have no no coherence whatsoever. People will see that uh, and they'll be concerned and they won't want to elect a president who can't who can't string together a coherent sentence. And when his advisors talk about it and his surrogates talk about it, they need to do it with a sense of sadness rather than uh, rather than mockery, right? Uh, you know, the, the way you approach that is to say, look, um, no one wants to point out when somebody's struggling uh, with memory loss or memory problems. Uh, we all have loved ones who've gone through this and, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to see it happen. And you don't want to point it out, but we have to address it because Joe Biden, you know, our loved ones aren't asking for the nuclear codes. Joe Biden is. 
Uh, and so it's a legitimate, I wish we didn't have to talk about it, but it really is something Americans have to discuss, uh, whether we can have a president who seems to have struggle with, with, uh, with coherence. Um, and you have to say it in that sense. That's not the way Trump says it. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I, I worry that he's, there are two groups now, you know, the, the swing voters and the seniors uh, that, that voted for him in 2016 that I'm worried that he's pushing away. That is something I hear that type of argument a lot. But when, I mean, when I talk to friends and family who also think that in the debates, Trump will just, you know, steamroll Joe Biden. Um, I always try to remind them, I mean, Biden had what, four or five, seven, however many debates just a few months or months ago in the Democratic primary. People yeah. usually thought, you know, the pundits said, oh, Warren definitely won that one or Harris won that one. But at the end of the day, Biden was the last one standing. Um, yeah. And it's not like Trump is exactly Cicero or Daniel Webster up there uh, with great oratory either. So he's yeah. got, I don't know, like, I, I think we're going to have a, you know, a battle of two semi-coherent uh, older gentlemen up there. And I, and I just don't, I just don't know how, I don't see that being such a knockdown punch for either one of them. I mean, the difference is a couple of things. One, I mean, you're right. So what most candidates do is they try to raise the bar for their opponent in the debate, not lower it, right? So what, what Trump should be saying is, look, similar to what you said, Joe Biden's been in Washington for 46 years. Uh, he's run for, this is his third run for president. He's also run for vice president twice. He's had 20, 20 debates like this. He's a, he's an experienced debater. He's a, you know, because uh, he's had debates in his Senate races like that. I'm, I, you know, I'm not, I'm a new guy at this. I've only had a few, a few of these debates. Uh, so Joe Biden's going to be a, is a great debater uh, as long as he can hold it, hold it together. So that's, that's one. Two on Trump, you know, I mean, he is a, you know, they're, they're similar in age, though he's younger than, than Biden. But he doesn't show any, I mean, you know, he took the senility test. <laughs> he's, he, it, we might not always follow his logic the way, uh, you know, uh, clearly, but, he's, but he can string together a coherent thought and make a case. Uh, and as we saw in the debates against Hillary Clinton, uh, he beat her uh, in those debates. So I think, I think the contrast will probably end up favoring him. But again, you know, it's like it's like it's like a baseball game or a football game or a hockey game. It's like anything can happen once the puck hits the ice. Mark, do you find the president's coronavirus approach to be counterproductive in terms of the emphasis on reopening the economy, reopening the economy, reopening the economy? And then it wasn't until I think last week he went out in public with a mask on and then he had this tweet yesterday about how it's patriotic. Um, why do, why doesn't he take a stronger stance on something like the mask? and saying, you know, wear the mask, and this is the way we're gonna open up the economy. Do this, and then everything can get back to normal. So the mask thing perplexes me, and I've had this conversation with the president, though not exactly as bluntly as I'm about to tell you, because that's another column I'm writing this week. But, you know, before the Tulsa rally, I spoke to the president, and I said, you should just have a bunch of MAGA masks made up and have everybody in the crowd wearing MAGA masks. Like, why, why, why not do that? And he said, you know, we're, we're, we're thinking about doing that, but there's no time before Tulsa, but we'll get that done in future rallies. Well, I haven't seen them anywhere, you know? So if you think about Donald Trump, he is the, you know, he's a marketing genius, right? He's plastered his name on everything. He's got, you know, we got Trump Tower and Trump Hotel and Trump Air and Trump Wine and Trump Vodka and Trump Steak and Trump University and uh, Trump Magazine. No Trump masks. It's like, it's like a lost marketing opportunity. Like, why would you, why would you, if you go to his website, they got Trump dog collars, they've got Trump pride <laughs> shirts, they've got Trump everything, but they're no Trump masks. You know, and if you had them, if you had, if they, if you think back to that Tulsa rally, right? So everyone was saying the place was two thirds full. 
they took off the signs off the chairs saying social distance was sit on every other chair, right? If they just left those up, the rally would have been full to capacity, right? And if all the people there had been wearing masks that said, make America great again, it would have been a completely different story for that rally. It's like, I just don't understand the resistance to uh, masking and taking some of these steps. Uh, it, it, it just boggles my mind. I mean, you know, you always hear these stories about a restaurant wouldn't serve somebody because they came in in a MAGA hat. Well, let, let's have stories about uh, people not getting served because they're wearing a MAGA mask, right? You know, that, that would benefit the president. Then he can talk about all the intolerance. They said, they said to my people, don't wear masks. They wear your mask, but then when they put on masks that say Trump, they won't let them eat. You know, it's just it's this is this is just not hard. Uh, it's frustrating that they're that I just don't understand the anti-masking uh, sentiment and the on, on the right generally. What about cancel culture? And I know this is another narrative that is going to be hard to predict. It's non-linear. It's unclear. You know how how warm these embers will become. September, October, and in those crunch time months. But that does seem to be an area where people almost feel, especially those suburban voters, almost an existential threat toward American heritage, culture. Now, some I would argue is healthy. I think most people would. The kind of Jefferson Davis statue removal. But I think people get really antsy when it becomes our presidents that are having their statues removed or their names yeah. removed from college buildings. I mean, how is that, how animating is that compared to, say, issues like the economy that affects your paycheck or whether you have a job or coronavirus life, you know, your grandma's life, whatever. How does that play in? Well, so first of all, I think it's all part of a tapestry, right? So if the economy is moving and getting better and corona is under control and, in the, and under control in the sense that um, not that they're not cases are increasing, but the deaths are not rising, right? That people aren't dying from COVID um, because that's really the metric that matters. Uh, you know, we keep hearing like, you know, on Face the Nation this week and I was watching and they're saying the death toll in the United States is 4% compared to your, it's not 4%. There's not, you ask Scott Gottlieb, there's not a medical expert in America who thinks there's a 4% mortality rate from COVID. Uh, it's just, we don't know, we don't, we don't have enough numbers of people, how many cases there are to compare to the death toll, right? So. Um, as long as hospital capacity isn't getting overwhelmed. Uh, and if you look at, I mean, the administration, despite they had a, a six week, um, you know, delay in the testing, which was not Trump's fault. It was the fault of the FDA and the CDC. The FDA wouldn't allow private labs to do tests. And the CDC got the only test that was allowed, that was permitted by the FDA. And they had, because of, they were found, to, they contaminated the tests because of sloppy lab practices. So we keep hearing about how great the experts are. Uh, not so great when it came to testing. That six-week delay is the reason why we had the lockdown. Because if you could have ramped up testing quickly, you could have done, you could have done what Taiwan and Hong Kong and some of these others and South Korea did, which is start isolating people right away who tested positive and prevented a big lockdown. Um, but putting that aside, look, there are, we're on track to have 200,000 ventilators produced by the end of this year. We, we, there's not a universe in which we'll never need 200,000 ventilators. We, we, you know, they're going to be giving away ventilators with like, you know, with, uh, at sporting events as, as, like a, as, a, as a surprise gift for the 100th uh, customer. You know I mean? There's so many ventilators. We had field hospitals. There were the, uh, the uh, Army Corps of Engineers produced field hospitals. Most of them didn't get used. The Javits Center in New York, nobody showed up. The USS Comfort, uh, UNS Comfort. Uh, showed up. Almost nobody used it. So 
Trump did everything uh, that was asked of him at the start of this pandemic. And now that those weren't problems, everybody forgets it. But we also forget that the purpose of the lockdown was not to prevent anybody from getting COVID, which is not possible. It was to prevent our system from being overwhelmed, buy us time so we could get enough hospital ventilators, so we could get enough ICU beds, so we can get all this stuff. And as long as going into the fall, we're not having that problem, then th those pro then then I think we're going to be okay when it comes to co uh, when it comes to COVID in the fall, unless there's a huge resurgence like there was in the spring and lots of people start dying again, and then that's all all bets are off. Um, in terms of the memorials, which you asked about, I spent a lot of time talking to the president about that in my interview. And I asked him, like, why are you so adamant about defending the Confederacy? And he said, I'm not. He said, look, he said, look, I'm a New Yorker. I'm a Yankee. <laughs> I was on the other side. I have no love for the Confederacy. What I'm concerned about is cancel culture and the slippery slope. Um, and he pointed out that two years ago after Charlottesville, when everybody yelled at him about, uh, about the statues of Robert E. Lee, he had said at the time, what, now it's Robert E. Lee, but soon it's going to be George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. And lo and behold, he's been, he was right. They, we, they're now going after uh, Robert E. Lee and Thomas Jefferson. And Ulysses S. Grant, the guy who defeated the Confederacy, because the ideology of the, of the left is, and this is the whole point of the 1619 Project in the New York Times, is that both the Union and the Confederacy were institutions that were created to perpetuate slavery, right? And so they're morally indistinguishable. Um, and so they're against both. And so Trump is worried that if you don't, if you do give in to the cancel culture, as this, this is what he tells me, uh, if you give in to the cancel culture and start taking the stuff down, then they're gonna, eventually you won't be able to control it and they're gonna go take down all the other stuff. That, what I, the, we had a fascinating conversation about Confederate bases because I said to him, uh, you know, we don't have any bases named after Benedict Arnold because he was a traitor, right? Um, so why, these people were traitors who these bases are named after. Why not change them? And what he told me is that he's concerned that he wouldn't be able to control who they got named after if they took the names off. Um, that he doesn't think that as president, he gets the final word on that. Um, that Congress would have a say, that there's commissions, there's all sorts of processes involved there. So number one, that's what he's concerned about. And two, he said something fascinating, which is like, isn't anybody a little bit superstitious? We won two world wars out of these bases. He said, nobody knows who General Bragg was, um, but, they, but they do know the troops that, that's the, that left those bases and went in one world, you know, two world wars. Um, so, you know, he's so, and, the tr and honestly, Colin Powell was on Face the Nation this week and he said, you know what, I, I trained at Fort Bragg. I never even thought about who General Bragg was at the time like that. You know, he, he's like, now he says we should take it down. But, you know, but at the time he was there, no one was thinking about who General Bragg was. Um, what I, and so we had this interesting back and forth where I, 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 where I think I, I told him, I think he's wrong. Uh, that I think that if he were to uh, change the, if he were to change, I think one, he has the power to change the names because he's commander in chief of the military. And so if he were to change the names and name them after founding fathers, Name him after Washington and Jefferson. You probably can't name a base in the South after Ulysses S. Grant or Lincoln. That would be a little bit provocative. How about Sherman? <laughs> but you certainly <laughs> can name them Definitely after. Sherman. But yeah, exactly. But, but you know, you could name a base in Louisiana for Lafayette, right? Um, you know, they're, 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 if, he, if he wouldn't name them after, the, uh, after our founders and Revolutionary War heroes, then that wouldn't be giving in to the cancel culture. That would be striking a blow. And then the other side would be the ones arguing and saying, how dare you name bases after these slaveholders and these awful people? And you know, then all this, and the, and, and the majority of Americans would look at that and say, I'm with Trump. 
instead of, you know, instead he's stuck defending these, uh, these Confederate bases that he really doesn't even believe in. Um, it's so kind of like your point about Fort Bragg. It's like Yale University changing their name. Nobody knew who Elihu Yale was. Yeah, he was a slave. He was a, ter a terrible slave uh, sh uh, shipper, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah was, but nobody knew who he was until you raised the issue. I mean, when you could go to Yale and not know who the founder was. It's just yeah. a name. It became something different. Yeah, but they, why doesn't Yale change its name? Um, why, and, and quite frankly, if we're starting to change names, like, you know, there are 50 statues around the country named for Robert C. Byrd, uh, who was the uh, president pro tem of the Senate when Bill Clinton was president, who campaigned uh, with Joe Biden in 2012, who was a grand cyclops of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and who uh, was uh, who got into trouble later in his, his uh, uh, Senate years for referring to some uh, working class Americans as white N words? Um, you know, they haven't taken down any of the statue. There's two names in the Capitol, two rooms in the Capitol named for Robert C. Byrd uh, in his honor. Uh, why don't Nancy Pelosi and uh, and Chuck Schumer take those down? Um, lead by example. They won't. Do you worry that, well, for one thing, I think the president called in the Chris Wallace interview, talking about the superstition aspect of it, and he said we won two beautiful world wars out of the, uh, um, he, he, I guess, I mean, do you, do you worry that the inability to give on some of these things, like, I, I mean, I don't know what the polling says, but I would guess most people don't oppose taking down a Jefferson Davis statue that this is only going to fuel the fire of cancel culture and that when these people finally do get power, uh, you know, the progressive liberals, that then it's just going to be all the worse. And then we really are going to have our heritage start to be truly come under attack from a, right now, I'd say culturally it kind of is, but then from the capital itself. And yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Um, and I worry about that. Uh, the, but you don't want to give into a mob. You want to do it in an orderly way. I mean, that's why the military bases are a perfect place to start because the mob has no way of affecting that at all. Um, and, you know, the, there's a, there's a, I think the assistant secretary for manpower and readiness is responsible for naming military installations. So the president could simply send a directive to the secretary, the assistant secretary for uh, manpower and readiness of defense and tell him to rename the bases and he would control the process. He could name them whoever he was and then, the, and that would be a, a good start. Um, then the broader question of not just cancel culture, but the whole thing. If they, if we, if if the if these if the left comes into power, this this country this is. I mean, this election, you know, the prospect of Joe Biden winning. I and everyone knows. Look, I know Joe Biden. I worked on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for seven years when he was the ranking member. I traveled with him, worked worked with him on a regular basis. Uh, I know him well. He's a good, genial, nice guy, right? Um, he's moderate. He's willing to compromise. He, I worked for Jesse Helms, who was the, you know, the bete noir of the left at the time, and they got together and got things done. Um, and I have no doubt that Joe Biden personally is like that. Uh, but he is, as President, I think President Trump accurately described him as a Trojan horse for socialism, that he's not, he's not going to be the president. I mean, he's already described himself as he's a transitional figure to the next generation. Well, who is he bringing in? I mean, Elizabeth Warren is Secretary of Treasury. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as the uh, head of the EPA. Uh, you know, go th go through your list of, of horribles. Um, and you know, he's going to be basically he's going to be the auto pen president who signs whatever Pelosi and Schumer and Warren and Ocasio-Cortez send up to him. Um, and they will trans they will transform this country in four years in ways that make it unrecognizable. Because whenever you advance socialism, it's a one way ratchet, right? You give people free stuff, you never take it back. 
And they and what the other thing that really worries me and where Joe Biden really raised the stakes in the election last week was he, during the primaries, he said that he was adamantly opposed to getting rid of the filibuster in the Senate. And last week he said, well, you know, it depends on how obstreperous the, uh, obstreperous the uh, Republicans are. So he's opened the door to getting rid of the filibuster. Here's what's gonna happen in the next election. Joe Biden's gonna get elected. He's gonna fill his cabinet with a bunch of, uh, of raving lunatics uh, and a Congress that's gonna, that's gonna have a majority, but not a supermajority, not a 60 vote threshold uh, a majority in the Senate. And then they are going to ram through their entire agenda roughshod over the Republicans as if they had a 60 vote majority uh, on, a, on a basic uh, majority and they're gonna do stuff. Uh, they're, gonna, they're gonna use COVID as an excuse to do all sorts of social engineering that would not have been possible in normal times. Um, they're gonna use these triple crises that we talked about as the, as the pretext for implementing socialism. And four years from now, the country will be, it will be unrecognizable. And on top of that, uh, they, will, they will stack, the, they will transform the Supreme Court They've talked about packing the court if they can. They're going to replace the two uh, two aging uh, liberal justices, but they're also going to look at expanding their majority by either packing the court or adding justices or doing something like that. I mean, we the damage that they could do. The party has gone so. If Joe Biden represented what the Democratic Party is today, then you know we could probably suffer through four years. But he is he's the he's the veneer that they've put on like the, the he's the he's the oak veneer that they've put on the plywood table of democratic socialism. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, the, the, the whole thing is going to collapse once they come in. It's, it's, it's very, very dangerous. There's, and, and Donald Trump is the only thing standing between us and that. There's a saying that conservatives love to quote uh, from this book called The Leopard. Everything must change so that everything can stay the same. If the Democrats and how far left the Democrats have gone are about to be swept into power, on some level it says more about the Republicans who have allowed this to happen than the Democrats themselves. And it, it seems pretty clear that the Republicans have to have some sort of substantive change, I mean, beyond just renaming Fort Bragg or, or whatever, or, you know, protecting Washington statues while getting rid of Jefferson Davis. I mean, the, the standard mantra, I think like Larry Kudlow is still out there saying for phase four legislation, we just have to get rid of the capital gains tax. Like that's not going to appeal to anybody outside of the Wall Street people. What, I mean, what should they be doing? You ask a couple of questions there. One, I, I just don't believe that it's the Republicans' fault that the Democrats have gone as far left as they are. So if the, the, they, they were, they've been moving in this direction for a while, it accelerated under Trump, but you know, Trump is not responsible for radicalizing the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party has radicalized itself. And the truth is that if they, Donald Trump became this arch conservative, not because he's an arch conservative, uh, but because the Democrats pushed him in that direction. If, if on inauguration day, Chuck Schumer gave a speech on the floor saying, I've known Donald Trump for 20 years. He was one of my biggest campaign contributors. Uh, we agree on a lot. We agree on infrastructure. We agree on minimum wage. We agree on a litany of things that Donald Trump said during the campaign. So keeping social security and not, not touching entitlements and all, whatever it is. And I'm going to work with him on an agenda to, to work on what we agree on and where we disagree. I'm going to work with him to, uh, to uh, I'm going to see if I can convince, change his mind. Donald Trump would have picked up the phone and said, Chuck, come down to the White House. Let's work together. And we, we would have had, you know, a, a truly moderate center right, center left uh, uh, presidency. Instead, they just became, they, they got into such a miasma of hatred for Donald Trump that they pushed him into the arms of the, of the right. And the truth is, substantively, with, with a few exceptions, uh, like, you know, withdrawal from everywhere, you know, pulling out of Afghanistan, inviting things like inviting the Taliban to Camp David, 
uh, and, and all the rest. If you, if if I just went through the litany of the accomplishments of the Trump presidency, and you didn't know who the, if I said to you in twenty fifteen, in twenty sixteen, we're going to no nominate a Republican president, and he's going to beat Hillary Clinton and end the Clinton machine forever. Then he's going to pass the first comprehensive tax reform since Ronald Reagan. He is going to be the first president to, to march at the March for Life, and he's going to be the most pro-life president in American history. He's going to roll back regulations in a way that no president has ever had. We're going to have the, the strongest economy we've had in a generation, lowest African-American, lowest Hispanic unemployment, lowest unemployment on record, uh, and uh, he's going to pull out of the INF Treaty. He's going to kill Qasem Soleimani. He's going to defeat the ISIS caliphate. Uh, but do it without getting us involved in another land war, in, in, in new land wars in the Middle East. Uh, he's got, I mean, I can go on, you know, he's going to impose sanctions on, on, on Russia. Uh, he's going to do all the things that he's going to launch a cyber attack on Russia uh, to, uh, for, for its electoral interference. Um, and he's going to do, and he's going to do some stuff that we're a little uncomfortable with. He's going to renegotiate trade agreements. Uh, he's going to uh, embrace tariffs, but you know, that's a small price to pay for all these great conservatives. Oh, and he's going to put two, the two most reliable conservatives on the Supreme Court of any, or, uh, any president in, in our lifetime. Would you have signed up for that? Not knowing who it was, not knowing all the other stuff, right? This is a strictly nonpartisan podcast, Mark. Uh, <laughs> okay. But I mean, no, most no. of us have signed up for that, right? No, is definitely. It's but the rhetoric. It's the it's the you know it's it's the language. It's the it's yeah. the gestures. And look, I'm a presidential speechwriter, so rhetoric matters. Words matter. I understand that. But the Trump presidency with the mute button on is one of the best conservative presidencies ever <laughs> in my lifetime. It's, so a when you think I mean, a final talk. question. <laughs> a final question, Mark. Hearing your uh, the scenario of a Joe Biden election, which you shared, and it's compelling, and it sends shivers not just down the spines of conservatives, but down the spines of moderates. They don't want that. And I think it's a very compelling uh, visualization of what would happen. It just makes it all the more shocking that he can't make basic gestures and speeches to unify the country. Is this Trump? not being open to racial change or to taking the necessary health precautions for COVID? Does he have stupid advisors? Why isn't he, it feel, these feel like two foot birdie putts in such a winnable election. Well, I mean, what's the disconnect? Is he racist as some suggest? No, I don't think he is. Um, and I don't think he's an anti-Semite either. Uh, all these things are, are, are completely overblown. Um, I, so for example, so place where he, took the advice from me and from others uh, to give a racially unifying speech was Mount Rushmore. Uh, at the Mount Rushmore speech, he praised Lincoln uh, for, uh, for uh, the Emancipation Proclamation and the abolition of slavery. Uh, and the crowd went wild. This pro-Trump crowd started cheering, interrupted him in the, when he said abolition of slavery, right? These people aren't racist. They don't want to be seen as racist, right? Um, he quoted Dr. Martin Luther King from the I Have a Dream speech and talked about how uh, Dr. King uh, said, called our declaration a promissory note that had yet to be fulfilled and that, uh, and that he, he, he called on Americans to live up to our deals, not tear them down. Um, and you know, that was exactly the tone that you would want the president to give. What was the response? Trump gives dark, divisive speech 
uh, you know, he, he uh, you know, starts a culture war. It's like, he's not starting the culture war, he's responding. Uh, they started the culture war. Um, and, and so, you know, he literally did what you would want him to do. I mean, I would challenge you, go back and read the, the Mount Rushmore speech from beginning. So I missed the Mount Rushmore speech on the Friday it happened because I had a family crisis with my mother who, who had, it was, was coming back from the hospital from COVID. And so I couldn't watch it. And then I picked up the papers the next day and I read all the articles and I said, oh God, there, he did it again, right? Um, and then I went and I watched the speech from beginning to end and it was brilliant. It was a terrific speech. So the media just, so when he does the right thing, when he does the wrong thing, it's front page news everywhere. When he does the right thing, no one covers it. No one gives him credit. I mean, he has said on multiple occasions, I stand with the peaceful protesters. We stand in solidarity with George Floyd. We're going to make sure that justice is done to, for his family. You know, we are in favor of peaceful. He said it in my interview. I'm in favor of peaceful protesters. I'm in favor of racial justice. Nobody covers it. Um, because they only cover when Donald Trump says the wrong thing. So what I've told him he should do is just every time you mention law and order, also mention racial justice and, and do it for your supporters because that's those that they want to hear that because they want to be able to cheer for that. Right. Um, so it just, it, it, I, I think he's just not that strategic. I think he's, he, he works off of his gut and he senses that Americans are upset with the, with the, with the, uh, with the violence they're seeing in Seattle and the unrest and he's gonna he's gonna go after that. Um, I wish he would do it. I wish he would say the things he has said more frequently um, as a matter of strategy. But he does say those things. Well, Mark, I think we're just about out of time. First of all, we hope that your mother is recovering from COVID. She is absolutely. She's better. She's she's home. For, uh, she's home. She at ninety two years old with every underlying condition. She beat it. Wow. <laughs> wow. Very, very happy to hear that. Yeah. Um, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Have a nice afternoon. It was an honor to be on the final, final episode. All right, take care. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. All right, folks, that was Mark Thiessen. Thank you so much to Mark for coming on to the show today. And wow, as Matt Wines had promised in the intro, we covered a lot of ground there. What are the instant takeaways, gentlemen? I, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Frankly, it's, it's fun. And interesting to talk to Trump supporters who can actually articulate and defend their points. Many can, but a lot of them definitely can't. We ran out of time. I will say I, I had one disappointment, and that was my final question regarding what the Republicans need to do to arrest this development of the, you know, the increasingly leftward drift of the Democratic Party. And, you know, Mark is right that it's not the Democrats' fault. I mean, it's not the Republicans' fault that the Democrats have moved so far left, but it is the Republicans' fault if the American public decides to vote in these very far left Democrats. And I, to my knowledge, I haven't heard many Republicans come out with a coherent strategy or a coherent rationale for why the American public seems all of a sudden so open to nominating people who, A, can barely even defend George Washington, and B, want to take the country in a direction that a much more leftward direction than we've ever seen. And Mark is right. We can't be held accountable for what every Democrat believes, but Republicans should be held accountable for allowing this to happen if the public suddenly views the far left Democrats as more appealing than the ostensibly center-right Republican Party. And, you know, sure, I totally buy his justification for some of Trump's slip-ups and his lack of strategy. And yeah, he does go with his gut guess what? We're tired of it. I mean, a lot of people are tired of it. And I think that's 
been an area, despite the policy accomplishments that most conservatives would admit to for the Trump administration, there's no question that I, that there's just been a golden opportunity that feels squandered to say basic, basic things that would unite Americans. And as he pointed out, I love the language used early on, give them permission to vote for the president. Because everybody knows that if you're in suburbia, you need justification at this point, And you just make it harder right now. Yeah, see, the, the mask thing really stands out for me there. It's like, just such an obvious thing. And you're talking about actually saving, saving lives. If he just put the mask on, people wouldn't say, oh, I don't need to do it. It's not patriotic. It took him this long to say it's patriotic to wear a mask. And it's just, I mean, the economic significance of it is obvious. Wearing the mask slows down the spread of the virus and the economy can stay open. And then there's obviously lives, hospitalizations, all this kind of stuff. And the fact that it's taken Trump so long to get around to that, it, it's dismaying to say the least. Um, but I thought Mark had some good comments on that too. But so in any event here, we want to move on. First, we want to say a couple things about what we're all up to next, given that this is our last episode. And then we want to get into our five favorite uh, episodes and a quick rundown we'll each go through here. Matt, you want to you kick it off? Sure. So I'm you know, it's ironic that our last interview was with Mark, a former uh, White House speechwriter. I am leaving. I'm starting this upcoming Monday on Capitol Hill. I'll be the digital director and speechwriter for Congressman Brian Mast. He's a Republican representing Florida's 18th district. And, you know, as they said in the intro, AEI is a great place to start, a better place to leave. Just the connections and everything else has been, it's something that I'm going to treasure for the rest of my career, I think. And I hope I hope to bring to Capitol Hill a lot of the values and policy expertise that AEI really thrives in. Matt, you know what that means? What does You're it mean? You're going to be a Florida man. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to the club, baby. Uh, that's the last thing I want. Well, you know, it will help my uh, burgeoning Buccaneers fandom. Now I have got more. That's <laughs> true. You have a justification now. So while, while Matt's going to begin a long career, I'm sure, influencing national narratives, I know he'd probably not accept that, but it, it will become that at some point, uh, Matt riding in some capacity. But Max and I are starting with a third partner, a digital news company called Pluto News. And we are launching later next month. The idea is that there is an incredible gap in the news industry for 18 to 40 year olds, but just generally people who want balanced, entertaining, digestible, fast news. And so the whole premise is give it to them, give it in a modern way, and uh, send us an email, max at plutonews.com. That is max at plutonews.com if you want to be on our mailing list. So we can't wait. Uh, Matt Weinstein will be behind the curtains advising us, telling us where we're stupid as he is, has done so well for this podcast. And so we're looking forward to that as well. Max Frost, what do you have to add? Yeah, so we're going we're gonna to have the news. We're going to have lots of fantastic news stories. Beautiful, beautiful news stories. And then beyond that, we are going to have some of our own original content, including um, a couple podcasts. And, you know, we'll be doing some of our own writing and everything. So if you've enjoyed the show, there is a 100% chance that you'll also enjoy the website. So again, sign up, send, up, send us an email, max at plutonews.com. We'll get you on the mailing list when the site goes live. We're absolutely thrilled um, to be taking this next step in our future. By so, the way, Go, Wait, yeah. before, we do the, before we do the top five, I will say this. It's interesting whenever anybody says 100% because ever since weathermen started saying 100% chance of rain and there's no – it just doesn't mean as much anymore. Anyways, I, I had to get that out there. But this case, we're no weathermen, okay? We can guarantee you 
that you'll enjoy. I wish you all could see the look of Matt Wine's face right now. <laughs> I can guarantee you that you will enjoy our new podcast. And hopefully we can get on Matt Winesett's calendar for an interview in the future and, and have another with, with the with the three hosts here. If you, if you ever see the, uh, the verbiage, an unnamed Capitol Hill source on Pluto News, <laughs> assume it's me. Excellent. Um, all right, so let's 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 go here. Um, how you guys want to do this? Should we each go? Let's do round robin style. So we each do five, then we each do four, then we each do three. I that love one. that. All right, that's smart. That's so yeah, that's smart. I'll start off. My fifth favorite episode was David French. I believe we interviewed him back in December or January of this year. Um, David French, just an incredibly genial guy, very smart observer of politics, and just an all around decent human. Um, so if you haven't heard that yet, I'll check it out. I, I encourage you all to check it out. Who's your two's uh, fifth favorite episode? I'll go. Yeah, I'll go. My fifth favorite is Ross Douthit, New York Times columnist. You know, he came into the Institute that day, and he before our interview started, he was writing his New York Times column, and he was so in the zone, and he carried that over to the studio, gave a really interesting interview. In depth, no question, but there's enough Starbucks, uh, they're not Starbucks, Star Wars and <laughs> Godfather to keep us to keep things light. So he was just very articulate, hard to stump that man. And it also, last thing I'll say for five, it also began with one of the great banter opening questions of what does it feel like to work for the world's most famous liberal newspaper? That was great. Only be, and it's only become more so. I, th I think I asked that question, so I will take I will take responsibility for that. Um, so my number five would have to be the Mooch. The Mooch is is a man who can put you on the spot, as I learned the hard way, for citing what he claimed were bogus Trump statistics. Uh, I stand by the fact that the numbers may have been slightly inflated, but were marginally off the wild uh, the widely held numbers that about ninety percent of Republicans um, support the president. Uh, but yeah, the Mooch, he brought the heat and that was a fun, that was a fun call. And it was, it was such a saga to get him on the line. Um, lots of phone calls, lots of emails, but it worked and we had a great call with him. So uh, that's a number five, the Mooch. Number four, Mike Giglio. This was before Tui's time. This was when Max Frost and I both read his new book uh, called Shatter the Nations about his journeys as a war correspondent into the Islamic State. Um, I think we both read that book on the way to, to the Amtrak station back down to UVA, our alma mater. And just the whole way down, I remember talking. We'd be, you know, we'd get to a chapter and just think, holy expletive. Like, this, did, did you read this? This is insane. And this dude is literally in trucks, uh, just heading down the street, going over bombs, getting hit by RPGs. And he, he came into the studio and talked to us. He's the most mellow dude we, we possibly have ever interviewed. Um, extremely, extremely yeah. calm. So that might be on Frost's list too, but I mean, that's all I'll say about it. If you have any interest in learning what it was like to cover the Islamic State uh, from the front lines, I, I should say he was with the anti-ISIS forces. He was not embedded oh. in the Islamic State. Um, oh, good to know. De definitely check out his book, Shatter the Nation. Uh, number four for me would be AEI's very own John Yu. John Yu was hilarious. Uh, we also did the first four minutes of this interview without someone hint, hint, hitting record. I'm looking at you too, because it definitely wasn't me. And uh, he was just, he's incredibly articulate. And we, at, after the interview was over, and this was one of our quarantine Zoom interviews, but we talked about his 
famous appearance on John Stewart's Daily Show, Comedy Central, and how he went into the lion's den and came out on top. Um, just he's he's awesome. So John, you number four. I'd say my number four would be Michael Lind, who came on right when his book The New Class War had come out. Michael Lind is to me one of the most interesting kind of prominent uh, public intellectuals right now. He has a very different approach to a lot of stuff. It's definitely not standard fare conservatism. Um, but I think the ideas that he's talking about are only getting more and more popular and a lot of people don't want to hear him. Um, so that was, that was a fantastic interview. He's a professor at University of Texas. He also founded New America, a think tank in DC. And yeah, great interview. I like talking to him a lot. Number three, the legend George Will. This was an interview where uh, my other hosts were out of town. So my friend Jack Butler uh, came on to co-host that day. He's an editor now at National Review. He used to be at AEI for a while. And George Will, you know, kind of a man that needs no introduction. He's been a prominent conservative columnist for several decades now. He's even been talked about on a Seinfeld episode one time where I think um, Kramer is telling Jerry how handsome George Will is. And we confirmed it, uh, he, despite being in his 70s now, I think. Very handsome. And... He, we talked about his book, his new book at the time, The Conservative Sensibility, just 500 pages of just hard-hitting political philosophy, American history, and just a meditation on the American founding and what it all means. A great antidote to the 1619 Project, which Mark talked about a little bit. Um, this book should have won the Pulitzer Prize. I'm going to say number three is Governor Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush came into this uh, Institute on a Saturday. And that's the kind of man he is. And he came early. He had his hair nice, gelled, slicked back. He's just, he's an incredibly nice person. He was gracious to us. And he made it feel like he had, you know, nowhere to go, even though he's, he's a busy guy. And, you know, especially coming out of the 2016 election season where Jeb exclamation point was a Jeb. I mean, he's just a man of high character. And he's, you know, a politician at a time with Twitter mobs and, and a lot of angry Americans. So came at a bad time, but just an incredible guy, very thoughtful, down to earth. And he debunked Max Frost's outrageous claim that Miami people don't speak a lot of English. That is not what I said at all. <laughs> but what I, what I did say is been verified by lots of sources in Miami that many places you go and the default language is Spanish on English. I was not saying that was a bad thing at all. I was just, I was asking him, is that something that obviously has an impact on domestic politics and is that something that people should be talking about? Um, don't get me wrong. I mean, <laughs> I think it's, I think it's, I think I tend to think that's a good thing. Um, three for me, Mike Jiglio, Mike Jiglio, who Matt mentioned, war correspondent in the Middle East, just awesome, awesome stories. I mean, the kind of guy that you just want to sit there and have like, I would say a beer with, but frankly, like eight, you could sit there all night just hearing this guy's story. <laughs> yeah. that, that was a great interview. Number two, my second favorite episode, I guarantee will be on the others lists, Andrew Sullivan. I won't give too much away of it because we assume you've listened to it. It might be our most popular episode we've ever done. He set the tone early. I had to put a uh, fifth of Jägermeister in my freezer the night before because he requested a uh, cold Jäger in the studio when we interviewed him. We told him the show usually lasts about half an hour. He said, oh no, that won't do at all. We talked to him for about 90 minutes and we could have talked to him for 90 more. So my second favorite episode, Andrew Sullivan. My second, I'm going to be really original, Andrew Sullivan. He <laughs> was he was just, the interview was like one of his columns, and we all absolutely, he's my favorite, one of my two favorite writers, three favorite writers. I mean, it was 
everything was fair game. He was happy to go in any direction. And he was incredibly interesting on every subject we brought up. So number two, Andrew Sullivan. Uh, I would say my number two is it's about a tie, frankly, between one and two. But I would say my number two is Caitlin Flanagan of the Atlantic. Truly, again, fascinating person. Very, I mean, beyond smart and beyond engaging, just the ideal person for, for a show. And we had a great talk with her, too, about all sorts of um, – I mean, it's wide ranging. We talked about college campuses. We talked about relationships. We talked about a lot of different stuff. Uh, that was fantastic. And it was truly an honor to speak to her. And, now, and I'll just add here, we'll go out of order here. I'll say my number one, Andrew Sullivan. <laughs> 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 absolutely loved it. Again, the ideal podcast host, someone you can just sit, or the ideal podcast guest, someone you can just sit and talk to um, for, long, for a long time and never, ever, ever get bored. So that was a true, true honor to speak to him. Matt? The moment you've all been waiting for, the moment that Max and Max already know in their bones. My number one is Ross Douthat. He's my favorite columnist by a mile. The only reason I still pay for the New York Times. And if you don't read his column, you definitely should. He has one every Sunday and every Tuesday or Wednesday, I want to say. I think it comes online every Saturday and every Tuesday. His most recent one, um, or the one from this past weekend on that White Fragility book, was just outstanding. Um, People were praising it all over Twitter. You might have already seen it. But yeah, as, as they said, Ross came into the studio. We talked a little bit about everything, um, even the Star Wars prequels, which he recently had a long piece of National Review talking about how throughout lockdown, he's been watching them with his kids, re-watching them. And he's finally coming around to the millennial viewpoint that the Star Wars prequels are uh, pretty good. So we're happy we convinced him of that. And I hope you all start reading his stuff and enjoy it as much as I do. All right, and my number one, Caitlin Flanagan. I mean, look, I, I didn't have, I was trying to think of like an interesting made up name and I couldn't, of like some guests we had on that we didn't, but you know, uh, I, sorry, she was unbelievable. Um, she, uh, first of all, talking about incredible writers, Caitlin Flanagan has written some articles that, when you're done, they're more like essays in the Atlantic and she doesn't really write on a set schedule, but she'll write some that you'll, the second you're done, you go to the top and start reading it again. Um, and you know, she was so gracious. Uh, she's a lot of fun. She, I mean, it was just, it was just amazing. Um, and it was really awkward because I'm such a big Caitlin Flanagan fan. And it's like weird. I, I wanted her to know that, that I appreciate her work so much. But then I also think it was kind of weird how it was like treating her, you know, like the second coming of Jesus at the same time. So I, I, don't, I don't know if you guys, I mean, Matt, you probably had that when doubt that came in your boy, Ross <laughs> doubt that I don't know how to handle it. Cause I want them to know, I love you. You change my thinking. And then at the same time, you don't want to be like syndrome and the Incredibles, like I'm incredible, you know? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, you don't, you don't want to come off like the dude that, who was the dude that shot Reagan because he thought Jodie Foster told him to and he was so in love with her? Like, oh, you don't want to come off like a, Henkels or whatever? Yeah, you don't want to come off like a loon, but you also want to, but writers are also typically insecure and narcissistic and they love compliments and I want to compliment people, uh, my favorite writers. As, as all three of us go on to pursue writing in one, in one way or another, I think that is a, a flat-out insult from Matt Weinstein. So 
thank you thank you to all of our listeners it's truly been a pleasure to share the airwaves with you all and get deep inside your eardrums uh again <laughs> sign up Max at PlutoNews.com. Send us an email. And I do want to congratulate one person. Uh, his name is a random John. That, that's actually his iTunes name. And he rated this podcast one star almost a year ago and said, this is the place to go for massive bias. So I want a random John to know that the reign of bias is over. <laughs> And you all can live happily ever after because we are out of here. One, 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 one final thing I'll say is if you want to follow any of us on Twitter, you can do that. Stay in touch. Our DMs are open. Traffic is light. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> My name is at Maxi Frost, M-A-X-Y Frost. Give me a follow. I'm at Matt underscore Winesep. And I am at Real Donald. Ch- I mean, uh, I am at Maximilian Tui. Give us a follow, stay in touch, and we look forward to seeing you all on the other side. Thanks, everyone.